The power of love is a curious thing. Make one man weep, make another man sing. Change a hawk to a little white dove. More than a feeling, that's the power of love. Huey Lewis and the News. We're going to be talking this morning about the transforming power of God's love. Love does change us. Even those who don't know Christ know this, that love changes a person. I remember growing up in my household, the way that my mother, among many other ways, conveyed her love was in in cooking and preparing meals. And I remember I would stand on a stool or a chair, whatever I could find, to watch what my mom was doing in the kitchen. Or she would pick me up and place me on the counter, and I could see what she was doing in this labor of love, cooking food for her family. And as a consequence, that, that I believe has changed me. Um, I love to cook. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the domestic responsibilities that I don't mind taking on at all. I love to go to the grocery store, and I love to come up with ideas of what to cook, and to go into the kitchen and make food for my family. My mother's love has changed me in that way. Likewise, my father, growing up on Saturday and Sunday, invariably, the garage would be open, and there'd be some project going on in the garage. He was working on his sailboat or fixing things around the house or whatever it was, and there was this little wooden box radio, I remember, old school radio in the garage, and again, invariably, there would be music on, Um, 90s country music or the oldies station. And I still, to this day, I I love music, and I love to listen to music, and that's just a memory that I have that the love of my father has impressed upon me that I look upon music sort of just as an atmospheric element with joy and pleasure. I just love to have music on, to the chagrin of maybe a couple of my kids, but I have to have music on, like, let's put on music. Um, And even today, I still have a soft spot in my heart for 90s country music. I'll let you guys know. It's not something I tell everyone. Um, or I, I had a friend growing up. You know, I, I, I grew up not really being into sports. Uh, I never played sports. I didn't enjoy watching sports, talking about sports, anything like that. But I had a friend in middle school and high school who was not that way. Uh, he ended up being a, a groomsman in my wedding, and he really loved basketball. It was basketball, even in my family, which enjoyed sports, basketball was never a part of that. Um, football was on, drag racing was on, NASCAR was on, but basketball was never something that was a part of my family. But my friend, whom I loved, loved basketball. And so in high school, I even found myself giving up good, cold, hard cash to go to the Oracle Center to watch, of all things, basketball. And I learned to appreciate it. I remember my friend would talk about Monte Ellis, or he'd talk about Baron Davis. And, and so we went to Warriors games, and, and fortunately... That way that his love changed me or my love for him changed me factored in later in life when I married a woman who also enjoys basketball and now I've got a family who loves to watch the Warriors and things. And so that is kind of a piece of me and that that love that I shared with my friend changed me in that way. Um, We can all, I'm sure, also uh, equate or or relate to this in a romantic sense, right? I remember as as a kid growing up in, in Larkfield in North Santa Rosa, I heard a knock on my door one day, and I went to the door, and there was no one there, but there was a little, a little note in an envelope. I'm like, what is this? It had my name on it in like crayon or something. I picked it up, and I went up to my room, and I opened it up, and there was this love letter from a secret admirer. 
complete with a lipstick kiss on the paper. And so my heart went into a flutter, and I started immediately going through the Rolodex in my mind of who in the neighborhood could this possibly have come from? And through the power, the, 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 the spectacular powers of deduction that most fourth or fifth grade kids have, I figured out exactly who it must be. It must have been Megan down the street. And I had never thought about Megan in a romantic way before. Um, I mean, what kind of romantic thoughts does a fourth grader have? But in my own little way, right, I thought, Megan, yeah, I think, <laughs> I, think I could like Megan. I, I didn't prior to that, but this note, and again, my powers of deduction, uh, was, was creating a change in me. This idea of love was changing me. And so I remember the next morning, I got up a little early, I rode my bike to school on most mornings, and I rode by, and I had to ride by Megan's house on the way to school, and I remember riding a little bit more slowly when I went by her house, waiting, you know, maybe she's going to come out, and she didn't, and I circled back around, and I still got time to get to school, and then Megan came out, and I was like, oh yeah, and I look over, and I'm just like, hey, like, <laughs> letting you know that I know, and uh it wasn't until a day or two later that it came to light that the love letter was a prank perpetrated by my friends, uh, complete with the lipstick kiss on the paper. But even that supposed notion or array of love had this changing effect on me, and love changes people. Certainly the love uh, in a marriage changes people, right? Um, when we have kids, the love that we have for our kids changes us. Love has a way of changing us. And in Ephesians, Paul has already been over this idea. Uh, Ephesians is a letter full of love. And, and, and John Hansen, even a couple weeks ago, preached a message essentially about Jesus loves me. This I know, right? Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In 2, 1 through 5, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays, he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love 
of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The new life in Christ is a result of his love for us and results in the restoration of the image of God in our souls. We know that all men are created in the image of God. That's how God created people. But in Genesis 3, the world is fractured and broken. And along with that, the souls of man are also fractured and broken. But in Christ, as we'll see, we have a call to put on the new man, which restores that full image of God in our souls by making us again like him. And he does this, he makes this change in us through the power of love. While the love found in human relationships indeed changes us, as we've seen, this offers us only a slight picture and dim analogy of both the love of God and the changes that are enacted by it. Right? The love that we experience in human relationships affects us in, in profound ways, but not compared to the way that God fundamentally changes us. He changes our DNA in the new man that he creates by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, there is no comparing God's love, neither is there like representation of its transforming power. But in Christianity, the seeking, rescuing, restoring, renewing, redeeming, life-giving love that God shows us has a fundamental change in the nature of who we are by restoring in us that original Imago Dei image of God. With that in mind... Join me in prayer, and we will get started in Ephesians 4, 17-32. Heavenly Father, uh, you are a holy God. You are within your rights to uh, destroy your creation because of its sin, but instead, Lord, you are slow to anger, and you are full of loving kindness. We are at your mercy, God, and you have shown us great mercy. And we worship you for that, Lord. We love you because you first loved us. You are working a change in your people. You promised to. In fact, you promised to do it until the day of Christ. And sometimes the process is very slow, and sometimes it can be very discouraging. And sometimes we can wonder if we are in your love at all because we fail so greatly or because the task is so difficult or because the transformation happens so slowly. But you are nevertheless, Lord, a loving God who promises newness of life to your new creation in Christ. And we pray this morning that as we open your word, we pray that it would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that we might not stumble in this present darkness, but instead be as a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. We thank you for saving us, and we thank you for the new birth, and we ask that you would help us to understand it a little bit better this morning now. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Let's stand. This is the word of the Lord from the book of Ephesians. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You may be seated. Paul starts out in verse 17 with a reminder that his listeners must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Uh, we, we talked about this several weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 2, that God has broken down the wall of hostility in his son by his son's work, and so that there is, there's no longer Jew, there is no longer Gentile, but in the place of the two, he's created one new man. And so because the, the old man is gone and there is a new man in, placement of, in, replace, uh, in the replacement of the two, he says that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, that in Christ... There are no longer Jews. There are no longer Gentiles. There's this new type of person, which is a Christian. And so Paul says we must no longer walk in that manner of life. Ephesians 2, 14 through 15 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two. He goes on to say why not to walk as Gentiles or to describe what the Gentile mindset was, the natural man. It says uh, they have a futility of mind. They're darkened in their understanding and they're alienated from the life of God. Darkened in understanding and alienated from the life of God. Now why is this? He's, he describes it as ignorance because of the ignorance that is in them. Is this a type of ignorance that simply doesn't know? Or is there something else at work here? And I think because of the language that Paul uses in terms of being darkened in understanding, it's not that an understanding isn't there, it's that the understanding is darkened, and that there is a certain futility in their mindfulness, not that they are not mindful, but their mindfulness is futile, they're alienated from the life of God because of this ignorance that is in them. And he goes on to say, due to 
Not having learned about Christ? No. Due to their hardness of heart. This, this ignorance is a result of hardness of heart. Not because they have not been told. Hardness of heart here, and he uses the word callous even uh, further on. Uh, verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's a hardness of heart that's like a callus, and a callus like on the bottom of your foot if you get from, from walking around without shoes. Uh, growing up every summer, I remember I have to like redevelop my calluses because I would just go want to play outside or run on the beach or whatever without shoes on. But in May, those calluses aren't there yet. They haven't built up. So you can still feel the pain of walking on gravel. And by the time August and September came around, I had nice big calluses built up so I could run on gravel and it wouldn't hurt anymore. I could walk on hot asphalt and I wouldn't feel it. And it's that kind of hardness that the Gentiles have experienced, that in the persistence of sin, in the habitual practice of sin, their hearts have grown hard and unfeeling towards the effects of sin. And the same thing can happen to us in the habitual Use of sin can create a deadness in a soul that is unwilling or unable to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's in the life of a believer. So how much more in the life of an unbeliever here, Paul is saying, in the Gentiles who walk this way, they've become callous, hard and unfeeling, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And it is that greed to practice impurity which has created a hard and calloused heart in them, which is producing an ignorance and a darkened mind that does not know God, and because it does not know God is therefore alienated from him. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, 21 through 22. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So again, it wasn't an ignorance of, of not knowing. They knew God. They just didn't treat him as God. They didn't give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, calloused and unfeeling and hard. Moving on in verse 20, he says, But this is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. These things were not beneficial. Sensuality and impurity, these things were not beneficial. They did not bring about the knowledge of Christ. This is not how Paul's hearers came to know Christ. It's not fitting. This behavior is out of step. It reminds me of the words of Jesus. It's saying, says that uh, the spirit, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no good at all. Or in Peter's letter, he says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The time that's past is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This is not how you learned Christ. We're back to Romans again. For you were slaves of sin. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. And not free in a positive sense, but free in a sense like cut loose, like the anchor's cut loose. It's, it's gone. It's wasted. It's free. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. You had no claim on it. 
But what fruit were you getting, Paul says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which now you are ashamed? This isn't how you learned Christ, he says. Not in the behaviors of the Gentiles. Gentile behavior is not how his listeners have learned Christ. They have heard about him, his listeners have. You ha- they have been taught of him. The truth is in Jesus. So what? So he's saying, put off the old man. Do not behave as the Gentiles behave, because you, that's not how you learned Christ, and you have learned Christ. So what next? If we didn't learn impurity from Christ, and we didn't learn Christ through impurity, what did we learn? What is the message of the gospel? What has the love of God created in the souls of those who believe in him? Verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The command is to put off the old self. That's what we've learned in Christ through his love, that we put off who we were, in preparation, as we'll see, to put on who we are. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Again, verse 17. He says, in part, that this is because of it being part of our former identity. He says in verse 22, uh, this belongs to your former manner of life. And more than that, it's corrupt. And how is it corrupt? It's corrupt through deceitful desires deceitful desires. Sin is exceedingly deceitful. Um, There are things that we learn in life, like not touching the stove, because you go over to the stove and you touch it, and it's hot, and you get burned, and so you don't do that again. I had a a, a Vespa for a while, and I remember I came home one day, and one of my kids touched the muffler with, with their hand, and they burned their hand. They never did that again. But sin has this way of convincing us that it will be different next time. And so we keep going back to the muffler and we keep touching it because it is deceitful. Sin makes mighty promises, but makes minimal performances. And somehow we, as fallen men, don't learn very well that it never changes. It will not be different next time. And our flesh is corrupt because of those deceitful desires. I want to read from William Hendrickson's uh, commentary on this subject. I think it's instructive to think through in your own life, but also through the testimony of Scripture, how over and over again sin just is vacuous and empty and can never make good on the promises that it holds out for you. It says, Cain's murder of his brother, a deed which has, had appeared so attractive when planned, brought nothing but a curse. Absalom's prospective crown, so dazzling at first, resulted in his gruesome death. The vineyard, so luscious and so conveniently located that Ahab, in order to obtain his coveted prize, had not hesitated to sacrifice Naboth's life, brought ruin to the king's household and prosperity. The 30 pieces of silver, which had shimmered so brightly in Judas's scheming, once in his possession, had burned his hands, tortured his soul, and sent the traitor himself scurrying on the way to hanging and to hell. And not to omit omit one of God's chosen ones, David, in a moment of weakness filled with passionate delight 
in the thought of pleasant days ahead with the object of his lustful yearning, was forced to listen to the words of the Lord, which like thunderbolts fell from the lips of the prophet. You are the man, the sword will not depart from your house. Truly, the old nature flaunts a golden cup, but upon inspection it is found to contain nothing but filth and abomination. Amen. So we must be renewed in the spirit of our mind and not walk as the Gentiles. More than just putting off, we are to put on, verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's not enough to simply put off, but we are to put on. When we come to Christ, he begins a work that he is faithful to complete to restore to us the unbroken and undistorted image of God in our souls. Now, we're not God, and we never will be God, but the new self, the new self that's created in the likeness of God, verse 24, this he is faithful to resurrect in us, just as he has raised Christ from the dead, and that same power is now at work in us, while what we were, the natural man, was inwardly, morally, spiritually disfigured by the fall. But what we now will be in Christ is a beautiful representation of the image of God inside and out. So we put away the old and we take on the new. And this new is a reflection of the original image of God that we were created with in the beginning in Genesis now, there, there, there are very few, just as a quick aside, very few dangers to sequential expositional preaching, like what we, what we do at Redemption Hill here, um, which is just going through the scripture book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and building upon ideas. And the danger is that you might come this morning and have missed chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and the first chapter, the first, first part of chapter four, which talks about the love of God and presents the gospel. And apart from that, you might receive this morning instructions on how to live a moral life, on how to not be angry and how to speak in such a way that builds up your neighbor. But these things will be futile and will not make sense if you don't have that former manner of life he talked about in, in verse 22. Without that former manner of life, which indicates a change that's come about by the power of the Spirit and repentance and faith in Christ, these are just rules and law, and they will not save you. So just as a quick aside, come to church, pick a church, and go there consistently so that you get all of the message because we can't unpack every verse every Sunday. And the gospel is key to what Paul is preaching here. You must have a former manner of life in order for these instructions to make sense. And now, having said that, having said to put off the old self, to not walk as the Gentiles walk, there's a command to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What does this look like? What does this look like? And that's the guts of the passage this morning. He gets into this in verse 35 through the end of the chapter. What does the new life that's been transformed by the love of God look like? 
And if you're following in your outline, there are six points here for you to fill in. And the first is to put away falsehood. Put away falsehood. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, put off the old man, put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We are members of one another. And this is an image that Paul has brought up multiple times already in Ephesians, that the church is a body. And the, fun- the purpose of the body, the purpose of the gifts, as we heard, uh, I believe, last week with Kelly, was the building up of the body. Our unity is what makes this commandment come alive. He says, don't be false to each other because you're all part of one body. John Chrysostom, who's an early church father, said it this way. He said, if the eye sees a serpent, does it deceive the foot? Or if the tongue tastes what is bitter, does it deceive the stomach? Like, who walking along a path, seeing a snake with their eye, is going to then step on that snake with their own foot? No one's going to do that. Or who tasting something that's poisonous is going to take the next step and swallow it down into their own stomach? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. No, they're not going to do that. So too, in the body, why would we deceive one another if we are part of the same body? Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. We are members of one another. A body can only function properly when its every member is delivering true messages to the brain. So as the body of Christ, as people with varied gifts and varied abilities and varied resources, we come together not to hurt one another, not to lie to one another, but to be truthful to one another for the purpose of building up and growing and caring for the bride of Christ, the church. So put away all falsehood, he says. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry, but do not sin. Obviously, the general command is to not sin, whether it's in anger or eating or anything else. We don't want to walk in sin. But it's interesting here to see that the command is not to cease from anger. The command is not, because you've put off your old self, put on the new self, and anger is a property of the old man. Anger is a property of you before you knew Christ. Put away anger. No, there's actually a command here to be angry in verse 26. Be angry. There are things that we must be angry about. God himself is very angry. And we want to be like him. We need to emulate his behavior. So anger itself is not the problem. But sin in the midst of anger becomes a problem. Think about uh, men and women who have changed the world because they were angry about things. Right? Think about William Wilberforce who fought for the ab- uh, abolition of slavery. He was angry about this inconsistency that on the one hand we say that all men are created equal, but then on the other hand we, we enslave those uh, who who we can. 
And he's angry about that, and so he changes the world. Or, or Martin Luther King Jr., right, who's angry about social injustice that's prop, uh, propagated um, or perpetrated, rather, against African Americans in the United States. And that anger drove him to change the world. Uh, there's a, a guy named um, Lord Shaftesbury who, who lived in Britain in the, uh, the early 19th century, and he saw uh, child labor as a, as a big evil. There were kids that were down in coal mines or little children that were climbing up chimneys to clean out chimneys, and they were working these horribly long days and getting hurt and being mistreated, and he became angry over that, and he was in Parliament, and he ended up enacting laws to change the way that children were treated in creating these child labor laws. And there was anger that drove him to do that. And even Christ himself, who of course we know to be sinless, was angry. He drove out the money changers, you'll remember from the temple, right? Who were uh, infl inflating exchange rates and defrauding people and selling, selling doves for sacrifice at inflated rates. And um, he said that they, they, had, tr they had turned... Um, his temple into a, a den of thieves, and it's supposed to be a house of prayer. And he was angry and drove him, drove him out with a, a whip that he had made. Or the anger that he, he felt towards the Pharisees uh, when their, their dogmatic, rigid stance on the Sabbath judged him for healing a man on the Sabbath. And the scriptures say that Jesus was angry at their attitude. Their uncaring and unloving attitude towards people who were in need. So anger itself is not the problem. We must not sin in the midst of anger. And that's a hard thing to do. Anger, it, it makes sense that we would kind of bristle a little bit at the idea of God being angry or of us not supposed to be angry because of how much opportunity there is for the devil in the midst of anger. And he even says that, right, in verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Listen to this from uh, Barclay's uh, commentary on this passage. I think this is a, a really helpful uh, way for us to think about, about anger. Um, you know, whether it's, it's abortion or border issues or the current economy and inflation or an issue that you have with your neighbor or your spouse, how can we discern between a righteous anger and an anger that is prone towards or producing sin? Listen to this. It says, the, the anger which is selfish, passionate, undisciplined, uncontrolled is a sinful, a useless, and a hurtful thing, which must be banished from the Christian life. But the anger which is disciplined into the service of Christ and of our fellow men, and which is utterly pure and utterly selfless, is one of the great dynamic forces in the world. A.F. Adeni's commentary goes on to introduce this, the idea of love being a tool for us to distinguish between a righteous anger and an anger that is prone towards sin. He says, the Christian's safeguard against the abuse of anger is love. No man can be safely angry with his brother unless he first love him. It's only they that love much who can make a wise use of the furious weapon of anger. If we are kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, we shall be able to show a righteous anger without lowering ourselves to personal spite. 
Then our anger will be a pain to us. Our anger will be a pain to us. And we shall long to abandon it for more congenial feelings. So shall we be like God, whose wrath is sinless because he loves his children through all the anger their sin has called forth. So be angry, but do not sin. And give no opportunity to the devil. It's interesting, this, this word devil in the Greek is diabolos. And here it's, it's translated devil as in the person, as in Satan, that we don't want to give Satan an opportunity. And that's true. Uh, nothing gives Satan maybe an opportunity in our lives like anger does to create bitterness, to make us say something that we will later regret, to make us do something that we would later regret. I mean, how many people are in prison right now because of a flash of anger and the devil has destroyed their lives? They've gotten a foothold because of this opportunity of anger. But this word diabolos can also be translated as slanderer or backbiter. So I think we can take this verse in two different ways. One, yes, don't give Satan an opportunity. But also, if there are people out in the community, if there are people that you know who are angry at you or to whom you are angry, don't give an opportunity for slander. Do you think that people talk negatively about people that they are angry with? Yes, they do. That's probably no surprise, right? So don't give an opportunity for slander. Don't give an opportunity for backbiting. Don't let anger uh, persist. In verse 26, even says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, right? Resolve angry situations. Let's go on, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Do not steal. Work instead. Each behavior to be put off here has a separate positive behavior along with it. Just as we are to put off the old self, we are to put on the new self. And here we say, the thief stops stealing. And he doesn't stop there, right? Like it's not enough for the thief to simply stop taking things that don't belong to him. He's supposed to work. And it's not even work so that you don't have to take things from other people. It's work so that you can give things to other people. It's a complete turnaround. You put off the old and put on the new, and this involves not being a sluggard. It involves working, and it involves working not just to feed your own mouth, but to feed the mouths of other people who are in need. So you may have something to give to the person in need. And previously with falsehood, right? We're not just supposed to put off falsehood, don't tell lies, but it says to speak the truth, to tell the truth. We're not just supposed to stop, stop having this angry behavior. We're supposed to have an angry behavior, but not sin. We're supposed to resist the devil. And here we're not supposed to steal. Instead, we're supposed to work and provide for others. And this is such an important concept for us to understand, particularly as followers of Christ, that it is not enough to not do X, Y, and Z. Christ has called us to so much more than not doing this and that and the other thing. But there are positive commands that come with this, to put on the new self. And this is a, a strategy uh, that I'm still learning in life, but I really, it, it, it uh, hit me hard some years ago when I, I was struggling with anxiety in a major, major way. And I just had these, 
these thoughts that would cause me to spiral down. And one bad thought led to another bad thought. And before I knew it, I was living in my own war zone that I had created out of, out of nothing um, because of what was going on in my mind. And what I had to learn, and I'm definitely still learning, uh, but was really helpful to consider at least, uh, was this idea of, like, of a thought replacement. That it is not enough just to not think about whatever negative thing is causing you to be anxious. You have to fill that space with something else. If I told everyone in here right now, don't think about pink elephants, don't think about pink elephants, everyone's thinking about pink elephants. You know how to make that go away? Green giraffes, <laughs> right? You have to replace it with something else. And so too here, it's not enough just to not steal. The, call, the calling on the Christian is to work so that someone else may have, so you may have something to give. If all we do is control the inputs, we're not doing a good job. Jesus talks about uh, someone who is relieved of a spirit, right? An evil spirit leaves someone and says that the evil spirit goes out into desolate places and comes back and sees that the house is the house that it was dwelling in is swept up and is clean and the bed is made and it's empty. And then Jesus says, so he goes and he gets seven of his friends who are worse than him and come and fill the house. And it's a picture of what our lives in Christ need to be, not just vacant of evil, but full of good and busy about the work of the kingdom. Christ demands that we not simply halt bad behavior, but that we undertake virtuous behavior. And in this case in particular, with the thief, it outlines a paradigm of Christian life that we struggle with, probably particularly here in affluent America, affluent California, very affluent Sonoma County. Our giving, or the giving of the thief, becomes the motivation for acquiring. Giving is why we seek to receive. Giving, in this case, is why we work, so we can have something to give to the person in need. The Christian ideal is to work not to amass things, but to be able to give them away. However, it is our tendency to agree with yes and amen to that, right? Yes, we would work to give, while all the while concluding in our hearts, I will have both. I will amass and then I will give. Or even I will amass while I give. Only to never turn the corner of having enough and forgetting Jesus' explicit words, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We ought to work so that we would have something to give away. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such a word as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Put away all corrupting talk. This idea of cor corrupting is rotting or putrid. It's, it's destructive language that tears down instead of building up. It's the antithesis of the call to the church to build one another up as a dwelling place for God. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, You had heard that it was said of, of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. We are to put away all corrupting talk. But instead, again, not just putting off, but putting on, to build up. Ephesians 4, just a few verses back, chapter 12, says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints of the, uh, of, for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And so our words are to build each other up. It's not enough simply to put away corrupting talk. Our speech needs to be positive. Our speech needs to be building up. Proverbs 15.23 says, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good is it? Do you know some of these people who you just want to be around because their words build you up? That whenever, even if you don't exchange many words with them, their words to you are life, and it's always encouraging. Someone in your life you have never heard say a negative word, that their, their speech is always seasoned with salt and always builds up. When I was, I was going through this, and I'm glad she's here this morning, I think of Wilma Yap. You know, just, just her words, I don't have a lot of words with Wilma, but they're always positive and they build up. And I'm seeing smiles around the room. I know I'm not alone in this. And this is how we are to behave, to put away corrupting talk and instead to replace that with words that build up. And in verse 30, moving on, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit in your outline. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. When we refuse to put off the old man, we deny the work of the Holy Spirit and this, this grieves him. Him. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's the third person of the Trinity, right? And we, we have a capacity to greatly grieve the people who love us most. Anyone of here, any, any parents here know particularly maybe what I'm talking about, right? No one can maybe grieve us like our children can, can grieve us by making poor decisions. It's, it's not that we don't love them. It's because we love them so much that they are so able to grieve us. And so it is with the Holy Spirit who has poured so much love into us and so much work into us. He's promised to continue a work that was begun until the end. And, and he's at work to refine our souls and to teach us to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. And so when we refuse to put off the old man or even refuse to take on the new man, this grieves him. Ephesians 1 says, In him is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Who, not what, or not which. It does not say that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance, or that is the uh, guarantee of our inheritance, but who. This is a person, and persons can be grieved. And in not putting on the new man, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And Paul here says, don't. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Finally, in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, verse 30, and be kind to one another. Be kind to one another, verse 31 through 32. There's a few words that he kind of shoots out in shotgun fashion that I want to hit real briefly. These are things that we are to put away as those who are in Christ, as the new man, as new creations. We are to put away bitterness, and bitterness is a smoldering resentment that refuses reconciliation. Wrath, you think of outbursts of passion or outbursts of anger. Uh, wrath can even have sort of a, a, a physical element to it where there's violence involved. Outbursts of passion and rage. Anger, the sense of internal hostility. And remember earlier, he did command us to be angry. But just as I read from Jesus who said, don't be angry with your brother, there's nuance to the word and they're not talking about the same thing every time that's being used. Um, so don't be ang- angry This is internal hostility. Clamor. This out-of-control outcry has like volume involved. Uh, You you can hear this. Think about like the angry neighbor syndrome. I don't know if anyone here has angry neighbors, but every once in a while I might hear something in the cul-de-sac. And so this idea of like clamor, maybe, you know, especially if we're in an apartment. Um, Clamor, noise, out-of-control strife, slander speaking evil of others, and malice is just evil. It, it, it can dwell in us without having an, uh, an action attached to it. Um, there is an evil that lives in us that doesn't always make its way out, but simply having that in our hearts is unacceptable and needs to be put away. Put away bitterness, put away wrath, put away anger, put away clamor, put away slander, put away malice. Instead... Be kind to one another. Be as concerned about the affairs and feelings of others as you are of your own. Look outwards and not inwards. Replace that behavior. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Be tender-hearted, merciful, compassionate. And he ends with the coup de grace. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The new life in Christ is a result of his love for us and results in the restoration of the image of God in our souls. Again, as Christ forgave you. Each of the things that we are called to here in verse 25 through 32 is a reflection of the original image of God that he has created in us and the epitome of who he is, of who God is. And as Christians, little Jesuses, little Christs, we are to emulate the behavior of God. We're to speak truth with our neighbor. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're to be angry about righteous things, just as Christ, as we saw, was angry about the right things. We're to be generous with those who are in need. Who has been more generous towards his people, towards needy people, than God himself? And we are to emulate that. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy, 1 Timothy says. God's word encourages us. It builds us up. God's words literally create in Genesis. He speaks out into nothing and something becomes. And so too, we are to speak to one another in order not to tear down, but to build up. And this is what God does. 
We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Certainly Jesus doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit. You'll remember at his baptism when the Spirit descended as a dove and there was an audible voice that said, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. Not grieved, I am well pleased. And certainly as he's ended here, we are never more like God than when we forgive. So all these characteristics of the new man that God has called us to are found in him. This is who he is, and we are created in his image. And it is our job, our duty as people who are loved of God to put off the old man and to put on the new man, to be like God, to have the image of God restored in our souls. Because of the love of God, those who trust in Jesus have been changed by the Holy Spirit. The old has gone and the new has come. And so we have a calling on our lives to put off the old self and to put on the new self, which is the restoration of the image of God in us. I'd like to close us with a passage from Colossians. Um, you can let's, let's stand together, actually, as I read this. This is kind of a parallel passage in Colossians 3. I'll read this, and we will close up our time this morning. Church, those in Christ, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the new birth. And Lord, we need forgiveness for the many, many times that we refuse to put off the old man and moreover refuse to put on the new man. I think of, of your servant Paul's words in lamenting over his own schizophrenia that uh, how, can, how can he who has been saved continue to sin in the flesh? Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And yet he concludes with praises to Christ who gives him victory and who has, uh, who has conquered the grave, who has conquered death, who has put sin under. And God, we ask together as a church this morning that you would continue that work in our hearts and in our lives to put away sin from among us. Give us tongues that build one another up, not tear one another down. Give us an effort to work hard in this life that we may have things and resources to give to those who are in need, that we would not be greedy. And we pray that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit, that we would, we would be obedient children, honoring the work of Jesus and honoring the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives by putting these things off. And we, we recognize too this morning, God, that this is a work uh, all your own. And we ask that you would do it in us, God. Give us strength to resist the devil, to not give him uh, a foothold, to not give him an opportunity. God, we, 
need the power of the Holy Spirit to put on the new self. We rely on you for this. Give us strength. And thank you that you do, Lord, that you promise to complete the work that you began. And as we are transformed, Lord, from one degree of glory to the next, we return all praise and thanks to our God. We pray these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.